but this is one of the primary problems I see in the American church. Much talk of Jesus, very little knowledge of him in any way personally whatsoever. Much talk of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, the omnipotent and omniscient God of the universe, asks them a very important question. He asks them, what are you seeking? What is it that you are looking for? Now, he knew the answer to this. Uh, it wasn't a surprise to him. Jesus wasn't going to be shocked by what came out of their mouth. Uh, he sees because of the question that they asked, their true heart, what they actually felt towards him. And he knows that uh, their desires and their hearts, it's not a vain or surface level request. They desire to seek him. And we'll explain about that a little bit in the historical cultural context. This is evidenced by the response saying, Jesus, where are you staying? Where are you staying? When you leave here, Jesus, where are you going to be? What did Jesus hear? They want to be around him. They want to be near him. They want to be close to him. They want to spend time with him. They want to listen to him and they want to speak to him. Now I can promise you this. I can literally actually promise this because I've put eyes on it and I see it. We have about 20 people uh, in this congregation in, in Wakeman who can testify to this actual fact personally. And I could probably walk every single one of them up here and have them give almost the exact same testimony. If you start a systematic reading plan through the Bible, it will change your life. Period. Nothing fancy, nothing foolish. Uh, it's not a religious ploy, and I don't get kickbacks from God for suggesting the Bible, by the way. I don't. It's of benefit to your immortal soul. So I'm not going to promise if you start that, that you're going to have perfect wealth, perfect health. Uh, you know, everything is just going to be sunshine and roses and Mary Poppins songs and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to promise that, but I can promise you something much better that will change your life. You will have riches that you do not comprehend. And that even when you are perfected in glory, you will still not be able to fully comprehend when you receive them and you turn around and you push them right back to Jesus as a free will offering of everything that you have. If I'm going to proclaim one thing here, I'm going to proclaim that the truth of God changes people. It really does. It really, really does. And this is why it just breaks my heart. The, the difference is black and white between those who are reading their Bible and those who are not. It's black and white. There's no comparison. There's no uh, growth in one group and there's exponential growth in another. There's joy in the things of Christ for one group and there's the rolling of the eyes and the huffing of the mouth like a child from many of the other. Father God, you're a good God. Lord, I don't understand sometimes, Father, why things happen the way that they happen. That why we have to deal with some of the things that we have to deal with other than saying, God, it's your will. So, Father, in the midst of hard times and whatever we have to deal with in life, God, when we turn to you, we look to you, we look to Scripture, and we say, Father, you're a good God. 
You command the universe and it obeys. How much smaller is this issue that I'm going through than you keeping planets in orbit or galaxies in line? God, Your power is so mighty and so wonderful, Lord, that as we look to our sermon text, this is the beautiful, glorious, wonderful truth that we have that You would condescend, that You would lower Yourself in such a way as to walk amongst us and to invite us into a relationship with You. To draw us into a relationship with You. And what a beautiful, wonderful, glorious, amazing truth that is. God, that You would bless the reading of the Word. Lord, that You would speak here in a mighty way through Your Scripture. God, that we would lower ourselves and move away from the spotlight and put the, fo- the, the focus and the spotlight on Jesus Christ. God, it's in Your name we pray in accordance with Your will we ask. Amen. Again, John chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. So this would be John the Baptist, not the guy who wrote John. Again, the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. First time I read this, I didn't think there was a whole lot of meat there, to be perfectly honest. There's a lot of times when I get into Scripture and I'll read over something and I'll totally glaze over uh, kind of the big nuggets or the pieces of meat there that are just waiting to be picked through to see how deep and how beautiful they actually are. So let's look at the first just two verses again. One of the reasons why I like to go back through the text over and over again. Uh, if, if everybody forgets everything I say, but we read through the, the Scripture twice, it's still a win here. It's still a win. So, our next our, our th- verses 35 and 37. John 1, 35 and 37. Again the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So here's our first point. True followers of Christ point others to Christ in a selfless manner. True followers of Christ point others to Christ in a selfless manner. So as we continue in our, in our narrative of, of John the Baptist's ministry, as he's jumping into uh, starting to physically interact with Jesus now, and his now John the Baptist's disciples are starting to physically interact with Jesus, uh, this is the third day in this narrative account. Uh, and, and how can we tell that? Well, we see the, the first account just starts talking about, we'll, we'll, we'll go into it. Our first group consisted of the Jews and the Levites. Remember the guys who were sent by the Pharisees? And basically what they were trying to do is they were trying to come in and and rattle the cage of John and see what this weird guy in camel hair with a a beard, probably locusts and honey coming out of it, looking like a wild man. They were trying to figure out what this guy was doing in the Jordan River. And why it was that, quote, all of Judea was coming to him to be baptized. So we have the, you know, the Joel Osteens and the uh, Kenneth Copelands and all the, uh, the other guys who are just super high on, on the kind of superstar spiritual ladder over here looking down and like, what is this weird guy in the river doing? 
Let's send some people to go, to go look and, and, and figure out exactly what he's doing so that we can go back and give a report. Now, the second group of people, and this was delineated by the next day, so now we're, we're in day two. The second group of unnamed people heard that Jesus was, quote, the Son of God, end quote. And now this third group, which again starts in and the next day, so we're in the third day now. Now this third group, which consisted of Andrew, this is Simon Peter's brother, and likely the second unnamed disciple of John the Baptist was John, son of Zebedee. When we look at his gospel account, John does not in any place whatsoever mention his own name. So commentators are almost uh, unanimous in their agreement that this unnamed person who was with Andrew was John himself, the beloved disciple. John who wrote the book of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also the book of Revelation. So let's look at the chain of events that unfold uh, before us. We've got the herald, the forerunner, John the Baptist, uh, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He's standing by the Jordan River. And at this point, he's got a, a massive following and has created quite a stir in the religious realm of Judea. He's, he's rattled the cage. He's said some things that probably they weren't too happy about uh, because when religious leaders uh, and teachers of the day would come up to him, what did he call them? Brood of vipers. Right, so that was about as cutting as you could get in, 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 without cursing uh, in, in, in Aramaic or in Greek or in, uh, in Hebrew. Uh, here he's saying, look, you're a bunch of snakes. You guys are a bunch of snakes. Slithery little lying, manipulative, evil people. And he's standing there now with two of his disciples, Andrew and John. And if we look at the text, he goes from, uh, again, kind of denigrating the, the religious establishment of the day and people's false pseudo-religion. And, and look at your text. Look at the actual text. This is, this is in 35 through 37. This is in exclamation marks. It's quoted too. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. It's not like he's just talking and then he's like, Hey, by the way, behold the Lamb of God. He's over here. There's an exclamation mark in there. So even in the underlying Greek text, we see very clearly that this is emphatic, this is uh, exclamatory, and this is something that he's getting really jacked up about. Why? How can I prove that just based off the other biblical accounts? Um, let's think about Mary and Elizabeth. They were both pregnant at the same time. Mary had baby Jesus, three months old in her belly. Elizabeth had baby John the Baptist in her belly, who was nine months old at that time. And it says that when Mary came into the presence of Elizabeth, that Elizabeth, who had John the Baptist in her belly, it literally says the baby leapt with joy inside of her belly when the unborn Jesus Christ came in being transported in his mother Mary. That's really interesting. So he was excited, literally, in the womb. And now there's a good possibility that they would have known each other all right, throughout, throughout their lives, at least all the way up to this point. But at least until that point, John the Baptist had been, he had been veiled from being able to truly delineate and say, hey, this is actually the Son of God. For the longest time, it was probably just this cousin-type relationship that John the Baptist had with him. But, Behold the Lamb of God. He was screaming it. Behold! Look! There He is! This is the One! 
God has already told me before this event came to pass that the one on whom I saw the Holy Spirit descending and, and, and sitting on him, on alighting on him, on, on coming down and hovering over the top of him, that this is the guy who's the Son of God. That's what the Bible says. So John has already seen this happen because we've just read about it early in John chapter 1. This, this event of Jesus' baptism has clearly already taken place and he's saying, yep, this is the guy. This is the one. You look at him. How many, how many people do that in, in, in any type of American club, society, famous following, etc.? How many people look and say, hey, these people are my disciples, they're my followers, they're with me. Leave me, go to Him. Leave my group, flee my group, go to that group because it's better. How many times have we ever seen that happen in anything in our own culture? You see the exact opposite, right? What do we see? We see somebody like, hey, where's the rocks I can pick up and try and throw at their, their house over here because they're wicked and evil. You guys come over here. Come, come to our group. Come, come be with us because we're better than that group over there. But in reality, what is John doing? John is literally saying, uh-uh, no. It was okay you followed me up until this point, but now that I know who the Son of God is, you guys need to go follow Him. This is the Son of God. Remember that John the Baptist could have had the most amazing, successful, probably wealthy endeavors of being a superstar by challenging the religious leaders of the day and baptizing people in the Jordan River. And what did he do? He faded into relative obscurity and got his head cut off. That was what happened with John the Baptist. John 3.30. John 3.30. He must increase. He, Jesus, must increase. But I, John the Baptist, must decrease. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. On the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 5, while he, Peter, was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And we see no matter where we go in the Gospel accounts, or where we go in the Old Testament, or where we go in the New Testament, this constant deference to Christ Jesus, this taking of the spotlight on self, or this taking of the spotlight on a certain group of people, and there's always a continual shifting of that spotlight to who? To Christ. We see, let's, let's shift the spotlight. Let's go Old Testament. Uh, Abraham and Isaac. Up on the mount, Abraham's about to sacrifice his son Isaac. Isaac is kind of the focal point. We're starting to feel like, well, maybe this is the picture of Jesus that's coming. He's about to sacrifice his one true son here on top of this mountain. And what happens? God's like, uh-uh. I'm going to stay your hand. I'm going to stop you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you over in the thicket here a ram caught by its horn. There's the picture of Jesus Christ. It's a pulling away from the story and a constant pointing to Christ. David and Goliath, there's another great story. Everybody thinks, oh yeah, David. Woo! David's so awesome. He's so cool. David is a picture of Jesus Christ. Why? Uh, let's say, uh, shepherd, born in Bethlehem, uh, prophet, priest, and king. Here it gets better with David and Goliath. Here, are you ready for your, your kind of New Testament jump into why David is not superstar David? David is literally just a picture of Christ, why the focus needs to be on Christ. Think about it this way. 
bad guys are here, the representative enemies of everything that is Old Testament Judaism or our covenant God. Israelites over here, everything that represented being a member of the covenant, being someone who loved Yahweh, being someone who was part of the nation of Israel. I'm going to come back to the bad side, ready? One person stepped out from this side, who was it? Goliath. One person stepped out from this side. It was David. And so, very interesting. Let's look at the imagery. You have one person representing wickedness. One person representing all that God loves coming out to do battle on behalf of either side. What did David do? He crushed his head with a stone. And then he cut it off. Genesis 3, chapter 15, what did God literally say that the offspring of the woman, Mary, ultimately, all of God's covenant people wind up stemming down to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ crushes the head of the serpent, which is Satan. And so we see a picture of Genesis 3.15. We see a picture of the battle of Jesus Christ Himself crushing Satan in the wilderness by using Scripture. The story is not about David just overcoming some terrible malady or sin in his life. The story is ultimately of Jesus Christ. The underlying story. How often do we get lost in this narrative? Well, David's, David's our example when he's defeating Goliath and Goliath is like our sin. And this No, you're not an Israelite. You're not David. You're not a Jew. You're not. Yes, should we fight sin? 100% we should fight sin. But the picture is so much more beautiful than that. The picture is of Jesus Christ crushing Satan and winning victory for His people. But how often do we hear that? Not very often. Again, there's a constant deference in the Gospel. It's evidenced in humility. Now, pride, arrogance, self-focus, me, 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 I, 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 those are all hallmarks of our own society. But, biblically, those are the hallmarks of being lost and undone. Of not having the fruit of the Spirit, of not having the joy of Christ, of not even knowing the Bible. Everybody remember Matthew 5. We talked about that extensively when we were preaching through James. And the underlying Greek word for blessed is makarios. And so James uses the same Greek word to describe those who are truly blessed in his letter. And so let's, let's just run through the list real fast. Blessed are the what? Well, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are gentle and hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those, listen, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted, and insulted. How many people would come up with a list like that and raise their hand and say, this is what I think blessed is? How many people would see that on a bumper sticker? Hey, persecute me today. (laughs) Not many, right? Not many would do that at all because that's the exact opposite of what we would perceive as being blessed, right? I'll, I'll just shake my head yes. I don't like being persecuted. It's not fun. I can tell you that personally. Right? I don't like being hated. I don't like having my wife be hated or my children be hated because of the gospel message or simple biblical standards that get upheld. I don't like that. But 
the unity of my family, when we suffer attacks together, grows incredibly. When we cry over people who are lost and undone, you know what that does? That helps us to see more of what Christ has done for us. Which then produces more humility. Which then produces more of a poorness in spirit because we understand that we are not good on our own. That we did nothing to earn what we have. That we did nothing to place ourselves where we are in any way whatsoever minus breathing and that in and of itself is a gift of God. So our concept of of what it is to be blessed is exponentially different in the world. And Jesus, oh goodness, Jesus had a way of flipping everything on its head, didn't he? The religious order, uh, the way that things uh, people thought should have gone, tradition, um, you know, people's perception about what was good or what was blessed or what was holy and so on and so forth. And and he took it and he crushed, he crushed those false views of that. Guess what it ultimately earned him? A violent, merciless death on a piece of wood that He created. That's why we must look to Him, obey His Word, and grow in our sanctification. We must heed the warnings and the wooing of the Holy Spirit in our life as Christians. We must be aware of personal sin and, listen simultaneously, be ready to wage a holy war against it. Because that's what we're called to. We must point to Christ and point others to Him in any way possible while lowering ourselves and pointing away from ourselves. Continuing in our primary text, John 1.38. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to Him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? It's interesting, isn't it, when we look at that? Um, we'll, We'll talk about the point and then we'll just talk about how interesting that language is. Our second point, true seekers of Christ want to spend time with Him. True seekers of Christ want to spend time with Him. Now, if you look back at the text, again, Emma, go back to John 1.38. Just look at the language here. Jesus turned and saw them following. So these guys who are departing from John the Baptist, they're now following Him. This is in John 1.38. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? So Jesus, again, sovereign God of the universe, knows exactly what they want. He's asking them what they want, but they don't answer the question directly. What do do they say? They answer the question with a question. What do they say? Where are you staying? That question that they just gave up exposed their hearts. We'll talk about that in a second. Now this, this point, our second point, that true seekers of Christ want to spend time with Him, it may seem childish, may seem very surface level, but it's incredibly true. It's incredibly true. Now I can tell you this both biblically and experientially. Give me a day or two, me personally, I'll talk about J. John's, my life. Give me a day or two personally where I'm caught up in the busyness or the insanity of a day, and I haven't read my Bible that much. Just a day or two. And I will immediately feel like everything around me is falling apart. Why? Because I will be trying like Atlas to shrug the entire weight of the universe or at least the earth on my shoulders. I can tell you that J. Johns is not strong enough to support anything on his own. 
But when I try and undergird the world or the sorrows of the world or the sorrows of the day or the sorrows of a community or X, Y, and Z, I'm not capable and I feel my weakness. I feel my own weakness. I hope that everyone in here who's a Christian that you've felt that weakness too. Why? Because that's just like when you see the little gauge on your car go all the way to empty and then the E light starts blinking or the little gas symbol starts blinking. And it's saying, brother, you've got to fill up. Sister, you've got to fill up because this car's about to run out of gas and it's not going to go anywhere if it doesn't have gas. That's the same principle. <laughs> Show of hands. How many have, have, of you have, have done just a 24-hour period of time of heavy physical labor with no water? Zero water. One. Okay, two. So I'll, I'll, three. Three hands. Okay? Heavy physical labor for a 24-hour period of time, even if 12 hours of it sleeping, with zero water. Think about that. What that feels like. Everything that you do from that point forward, everything, becomes pointed towards getting that next glass of water. That next sip of water and someone could offer you uh, they could offer you a coke and you'd probably slap it out of their hands and you'd say no I don't want a coke I want water they could bring a, a, a drink of your choice up but if it was not water it was not that which would truly quench your thirst in the most amazing way you know that only the only possible thing that that false drink could possibly do is ultimately cause you to be more thirsty in the end so it might satisfy you, at least in your mind, at least wetting your mouth a bit. It might satisfy you for a moment, but ultimately that would just produce death quicker than if you had not taken it to begin with. <laughs> Everything is tinged with thirst and the thought of water. Everything becomes burdensome because your body is literally crying out for something it needs even more than food. So it is with the Word of God in prayer. So it is with the Word of God in prayer. Being in communion with God is water and bread. It is everything. Think about the times when Jesus would depart and He would go off by Himself. and, and you know, the, His disciples are looking at Him, hey, isn't He hungry? Aren't you hungry, Jesus? He says, hey, I've got bread to eat that you don't even know about. What He's talking about, Jesus is agreeing, by the way. He's playing the pipes right now. <laughs> totally joking. <laughs> but that being said, this is, this, is, this is so blatant. It's so incredibly simple. And I feel honestly foolish for saying it, but this is one of the primary problems I see in the American church. Much talk of Jesus, very little knowledge of Him in any way personally whatsoever. Much talk of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, the omnipotent and omniscient God of the universe, asks them a very important question. He asked him, what are you seeking? What is it that you are looking for? Now, he knew the answer to this. Uh, it wasn't a surprise to him. Jesus wasn't going to be shocked by what came out of their mouth. Uh, he sees, because of the question that they asked, their true heart, what they actually felt towards him. And he knows that uh, their desires and their hearts, it's not a vain or surface level request. They desire to seek Him. And we'll explain about that a little bit in the historical cultural context. This is evidenced by their response saying, Jesus, where are you staying? Where are you staying? When you leave here, Jesus, where are you going to be? 
What did Jesus hear? They want to be around him. They want to be near him. They want to be close to him. They want to spend time with him. They want to listen to him and they want to speak to him. Now I can promise you this. I can literally actually promise this because I've put eyes on it and I see it. We have about 20 people uh, in this congregation in, in Wakeman who can testify to this actual fact personally. And I could probably walk every single one of them up here and have them give almost the exact same testimony. If you start a systematic reading plan through the Bible, it will change your life. Period. Nothing fancy, nothing foolish. Uh, it's not a religious ploy, and I don't get kickbacks from God for suggesting the Bible, by the way. I don't. It's of benefit to your immortal soul. So I'm not going to promise if you start that, that you're going to have perfect wealth, perfect health, uh, you know, everything is just going to be sunshine and roses and Mary Poppins songs and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to promise that, but I can promise you something much better. It will change your life. You will have riches that you do not comprehend. And that even when you are perfected in glory, you will still not be able to fully comprehend when you receive them. And you turn around and you push them right back to Jesus as a free will offering of everything that you have. Hmm. If I'm going to proclaim one thing here, I'm going to proclaim that the truth of God changes people. It really does. It really, really does. And this is why it just breaks my heart. The, the difference is black and white between those who are reading their Bible and those who are not. It's black and white. There's no comparison. There's no uh, growth in one group and there's exponential growth in another. There's joy in the things of Christ for one group and there's the rolling of the eyes and the huffing of the mouth like a child from many of the other. This is why the people of Christ spend time with Him. Jesus said of Himself in John chapter 10, verse 14, I, Jesus, am the Good Shepherd, and I know My own, and My own know Me. Let me do a quick exposition of this. Christ is the Good Shepherd. Christ is the Good Shepherd. Your pastor is not the Good Shepherd. Let me say that again. Your pastor is not the Good Shepherd. He is an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ who answers to the true shepherd, the Messiah, the Son of God. But the text says something very interesting. It says that I, Jesus, know my sheep, and my sheep, Christians. Ah, Christians. Those who are truly my sheep know me. So I'm going to ask some very difficult questions. I hope that you guys have brought your, your resolve uh, to you or with, with, with yourselves today. To, to, very difficult. Very, very difficult questions I'm about to ask you. Uh, how many of you have children? Show of hands. All right, so that's everyone. Everyone in here has a child, minus Ezra and Grayson. Sorry. Later. Later, young man. Later. All right. So that being said... <clears throat> We all know what it's like to have a child. So how many of you who are parents brought them into life physically? That's, that should be everybody because I don't think the virgin birth has happened again. So that's everybody. All right. How many of you know your children? Everyone knows their children, right? Okay, I know my child too. I know my children, plural. How many of you really, really know your children? 
Like you know them better than they actually do. Okay, that's again a difficult question to ask. So how many of you who have kids that you brought physically into life that you know really, really, really well because you raised them and you fed them and you provided for them and you cared for them and you disciplined them and you loved them more than anything in the world minus your spouse and Jesus? How many of your kids know nothing about you? Show of hands that your kids know absolutely nothing about you. Those same kids who you raised, loved for, and cared for. Nothing. I didn't see a single hand. You see, if Christ know you, knows you, you will grow in your knowledge of Him. Any relationship that is real will progressively grow in its depth, its width of knowledge, and its understanding. Ah, there's the, the tough physical analogy that we're drawn into if it's true in the physical if it's actually true in the physical most of the time the spiritual undertones also will be true that's why jesus used analogies right it's the exact same principle there that's why i cringe when i hear people in their 70s and their 80s and their 90s sometimes all over the place who have been professing christians for 70 80 or 90 years Say things like, I don't know anything about the Bible or Jesus. Now, the words that are going to come out of my mouth might be a little offensive, but they're biblically true. My friends, if that is you or you know someone like that, they are not a Christian. Period. They're not. You must repent and believe the Christ. You must grow in your love of the Christ. You must grow in your love and desire for the Christ. You must grow in your relationship with the Christ. And if there is no relationship there, there is no relationship there. Matthew 7, verses 17-23. through 23. Red letter words. Jesus speaking. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, and Jesus is, is now saying, this is what's going to happen in the future about me. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who is it that will? But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, or Adonai, Adonai. Words of, of, of endearment, words of love. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, Jesus cast out demons? And in your name, Jesus performed many miracles? Question mark, Jesus? Then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You never had a relationship with me. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus said the same thing. The exact same thing. But the most joy and the most peace and the most glorious feelings for the Christian and for the person who is truly seeking are found in Christ. Psalm 23, verses 1-6. through The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. Not mine. His. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what it feels like to be a Christian. To follow the true shepherd to be provided for beyond your wildest spiritual imagination in every possible way. Because here's what happens when you're a true sheep of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is literally saying, this is my word, this is the Bible, and you want nothing to do with it, you don't want to be fed, guess what happens when someone doesn't ever eat? They die. Guess what happens when someone does not have the ability to even lift their head to eat? It's because they're already dead. Ephesians 2. This is the biblical command that if you profess Him, you follow Him. And if you follow Him, that you love Him. And if you love Him, that you believe Him. And if you believe Him, that you evidence that with your life. I've talked to a lot of drug dealers, rapists, murderers, um, you name it, in prison settings. And I'll walk in there and I'll say, what happens? What would happen? Because the, the drug of choice where, where we used to live was meth. What would happen if I cut this with, I don't know, borax or something like that? And I made some fake meth. What, what would you guys do? They'd say, I spot that a mile away. I'd see that bag of rock. I'd know that's not real. All right, well, what if I mix some oregano into it with a little bit of marijuana? Brother, I'd smell that. I'd know it's fake real fast. I know it wasn't 100%. I know it wasn't real. Hmm. So people in prison can spot a fraud real quick. They can, they, they can spot that guy who just wants to make a dollar real quick. But how cowardly are most ministers who are unwilling to tell people their spiritual condition for fear of what might happen to them. Murderers of men's souls is what they are. The blood guilt of those people will cry out against those ministers in the day of judgment. Because for fear of their life, or their reputation, or their job, or their family, or their house, or their dogs, or whatever else they wanted. For fear of all those things going away, they would not tell people the truth of the gospel. People perish in their sins and die a terrible death. Murderous and blasphemous. False prophets is what those people would be considered in a biblical sense. Second Peter and Jude it's like the sea whipped up in its own shame when it produces foam. It's like a cloud without water. I can see you're a cloud. What are you going to do? Nothing? Okay, thanks. Thanks. At least you blocked the sun for a little while so I could hide in my sin. And that's all you got. I tell people that this is real. 
and mean that from the bottom of my heart that this Bible is actually real. And that we are waging a war every time we step out of of these doors and we walk into the street that literally in front of us, though unseen, there are battles in the spiritual realm that are waging all around us. Now, I don't mean that in some kind of mystical sense where I'm going to go out and try and fist fight or karate chop demons. That's not what I'm talking about. But we fight a real war every day as Christians. A real one. Here's... you. How many, how many kingdoms have truly been advanced into great empires by walking up to people and saying, could you please move your boundaries back just a little bit so that we can kind of get some of your territory and maybe put our forces up a little bit further? What war has ever been won by doing that? Zero? So what does that mean? That if it's real in the physical, with this spiritual undertone, it's also real. Here's how you win a war. Violent, bloody conflict. Steel on flesh, hand to hand, in the mud, in the grit, in the mire. Some of the mightiest warriors that I know are in their 70s and 80s and could not physically lift a sword. And could not even stand under the weight of a real coat of armor. But when they hit their knees, Demonic legions tremble because of the power of God through them and in them, not because of them. This is real. And we have to be willing to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to side with you. I'm going to side with Christ. Just as God said when He drew a line in the sand and said to the ocean, Hitherto thou shalt come, but no further. Yeah, you can, you, can, you can flop around all you want up to this point, but you ain't crossing my line because I've established it and I've set it and it's not going to change. Continuing in our sermon text in John 1.39. He, Jesus, said to them, come and you will see. You want to see where, where I'm staying? You want to see where I'm going to sleep? Come and see. So they came and saw where He was staying and they stayed with Him that day for it was about the tenth hour. Point three, closing point, true seekers of Christ obey His words and believe. True seekers of Christ obey His words and believe. Now keep in mind Andrew and John, now we're talking about John, the writer of the Gospel, who separated from John the Baptist. All right, So this is John, the beloved disciple, John the son of Zebedee, John the revelator, John the one who wrote the book of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're talking about this guy now. They were, past tense, followers of John the Baptist. Now during that time, they were being worked on by the Spirit of God. God was drawing them closer and closer to Himself. They were real seekers of God because here it is, God moved on their behalf and drew them into a progressively closer relationship with Himself. Now, this was not simply a testing of the waters for Andrew and John. Uh, This was the start of the greatest journey they could ever undertake on this earth Period. Bar none. It was following through on the literal, physical, and spiritual invitation of Jesus Christ Himself. Now we don't get to, we don't get to actually have that if Jesus repelled out of the ceiling and came down here and said, hey, unsaved person, follow me, and then walked out the building. That would be the only way that someone could physically respond to a physical message of Jesus 
with him saying, come follow me. These guys got that. So us as Christians, as New Testament Christians, Jesus Christ was killed on a cross, rose the third day, walked the earth for 40, ascended with angels on high. He's now currently seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's not going to come back and physically offer anyone else an invitation. It's not going to happen. He's going to come back in great judgment and war. That's what's going to happen. Remember what he said when he came to the earth. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And it will divide people. It will divide families. It will divide friends. It will divide business relations. It will divide churches. It will divide... You throw it in there. It will divide everything. Because the truth of God is offensive. And it's tough. But it's beautiful. And it's true. What did Jesus say to him? He said, come and you will see, Andrew and John, come and you will see where I'm staying. So understand, this is the, the, the tenth hour, right? The invitation was for them to come and spend time with him, not to come in and tour and say, okay, Jesus, I like your you know, straw mat there that you've got where you sleep. Okay, now we saw where you stayed, we're going to leave. That's not what Jesus, uh, or, or that's not what, what Andrew and John actually wanted. They wanted to spend time with him. How can I prove that? Historical, cultural context here for you. It was the 10th hour, so that would have been 1600 for military people because the day started at 6 o'clock. Or 4 p.m. For, for all the people who don't like military time. <laughs> 4 p.m., all right? So 4 p.m. in Judea, uh, that's, the, that's the time when things started slowing down. That's when people would start closing their businesses down. And that's the time that a traveler still had daylight to go and find a place where they could pay a couple pennies to lay their head. So they stopped doing what they were doing and they would wind up traveling. And, and at this point, Jesus was already staying somewhere. So he had his little you know, sleeping bag set up and whatever else he had. And, and they were going to go and see where he was staying, not to see his sleeping bag, but to spend, Lord willing, the whole night talking to him. That's what they wanted to do. And we see Jesus' answer to their question was so much deeper than what they came up with. It was so much more beautiful than just simply giving them the answer. He was inviting them to spend time with Him. It wasn't just a, hey, come look at me. It was a, hey, come talk to me. Hey, come relate with me. Hey, come have a relationship with me. Can you fathom that? That the God of the universe took time out of his day to condescend to humanity and even speak with, let alone invite two un unknown, no-name guys in Judea to come and spend the evening, listen, then the next three years of his life side by side with him. Think about that invitation. Christians, this is the exact same thing for you. If you are a Christian, you have the holy, perfect, omniscient, almighty, incomprehensibly wonderful and magnificent God of the universe residing in your body through the Holy Spirit. Hmm. The same God that called Andrew and John called you into a relationship with Himself. The same God that spent time with Andrew and John will spend forever with you. The same God who spent time with Andrew and John wrote a book called the Bible. And it contains 66 love letters from God 
himself to you, to us. Hmm. How many people would get a long love letter from their husband or their wife or their admirer if they're not married and say, you know what? This letter's getting really long and really old and boring and I don't want to read it anymore. I can't fathom that. I know for a fact that if my wife wrote me a multi-page love letter and I got three quarters of the way through and I sat it down, I was like, oh, I need to stretch my back and kind of relax for a little bit before I get through this, this one, that would crush her. That would break her heart and she would wind up in tears. In the same way that if I spent a long time trying to write a letter out to my wife and she said, you know what? I'm not even going to look at it. That would crush me as a man. That would kill me inside. Can you fathom that rejection? Think about what God feels. Try and put yourself as, as seeing God from outside the window looking in and, and, and God saying literally, like, I, I wrote this for you. I perfectly preserved this for you over a period of 1,500 years of writing with 40 different authors in three different languages and not one single contradiction, which means that it's perfectly self-attesting to begin with. And you know that it's perfect. You know that it's my word. You know that I love you. You know that I've given it to you and you don't want to crack it open. Now, here, here's, I'm not going to delve into legalism, all right? Because legalism would say you have to read this much of the Bible every single day in order to be a Christian. I've never established that. I would never try and establish that. But here's what you should do you should get to a point where you're progressively reading more and more and more of the Scripture because you realize how important it is in your life. Because if it's the Word of God, and if you're not reading it, and if you don't care about it, and if you don't want to care about it, that is a sign of your unconversion. I've used the, the analogy a hundred times. I'll use it again, physical analogy, really quick. I don't know anything about laying bricks. I've laid five cinder blocks in my life. That was it, literally five. I did it in an army course on construction. I did terrible in that course. Right? Not, I'm just not good at it. And I laid my little five, five layers down there. Now, if I came up to someone who I knew had been a master mason slash bricklayer, blocklayer, whatever, for 50, 60 years, and they knew that inside and out, or at least they said they did, and I came up to them, I said, sir, I've laid five concrete blocks in my life. I don't really know what the tips and tricks and the best way to go about this are. If I look at him, and he's been by his own mouth, professing to be a master bricklayer or a mason for 50, 60, 70 years. And I walk up to him and say, sir, what do I do? How can I make this level? How can I make this look better? I don't know. I don't know. You just got to figure it out. Well, sir, haven't you been doing this for 70 years? Yeah, of course I have. But, um, you know, I don't really know what you're doing there. It's just, uh, you know, that stuff's kind of... Eh, I don't, I don't really enjoy it that much. But sir, you're, you're, you're the master at this. Or at least you should be a master because you've been laying bricks for 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years, haven't you? Well, that doesn't really mean that I, I have to actually know how to do it. What job would hire 
that master mason who knew nothing of masonry. Not one. Not one. Because with his life, with his actions, and with his fruit, he would prove to everyone that he was not a mason to begin with. That he was false in his profession of his trade. That is the same spiritual principle as Christianity. <laughs> Closing verse, John 10, verses 27 through 29. This is Jesus. Red letter words. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Notice how the personal pronoun me is capitalized. It's referring to the deity of Jesus Christ. Notice how it's not lowercase, at least in, in, in my... Yes, that's capitalized in that one. Okay, good. The NASB capitalizes proper pronouns for deity. This is talking about Christ. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I, Jesus, give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. That's deep. That's really deep. But what Jesus just said there is that the sheep that are not mine are not sheep, they're goats. And they will not hear my voice. They cannot hear my voice because I am not their shepherd. Without getting into eschatology discussions over the end times, there will literally come a time where Jesus separates the wheat and the tares in the church. It's also known as the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. The sheep he will gather to one side, the goats, the false professors, he will gather to the other. Ultimately, if I'm going to condense a couple chapters, those who have professed Jesus Christ but have fought against him, he will bind hand and foot chains and toss into the lake of fire for all eternity. And those who truly belong to him, those who truly know his voice and who he truly knows, will be welcomed into the rest of their master. <laughs> they will be welcomed to the great marriage feast and supper of the Lamb, where the bride of Christ, the church, and Jesus Christ consummate that marriage, figuratively speaking, in heaven together as they become one. Think about how beautiful this is. I believe it's Isaiah 40, verse 5, 6, somewhere around there. God literally says, I'm going to break out the aged wine. So in Hebrew, what does that mean? I'm, I'm going to serve you guys the real good stuff. Not just the stuff that points to the fact that I'm good and I'm gracious and I'm loving and I'm merciful. I'm going to give you the good stuff. The really good stuff. And it's going to be perfect. Bow with me. God, what joy there is to be found in the Word of God. What great joy we have, Lord, in You. Father God, I pray that You would move here in a mighty way. God, You would impress upon us the necessity of drawing close to You. God, of listening to You, of obeying You, of loving You, of supping with You, of, 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 of waiting for You, of communicating with You. 
God, that you would show us more of yourself. God, that you would demonstrate more of who you are in the Bible to us in a tangible way as we see things walked out in front of us. God, we love you, we praise you, we honor you, and we worship you. Help us to see Christ. Help us to decrease in the views of ourself. Help us to seek you daily in our lives as we crucify our flesh and its sinful desires. And help us to point others to Christ. Father God, it's in your name we pray. According to your will we ask. Amen. This is not going to be on your screens, but I'll ask you to, as the deacons and deaconesses are preparing for communion, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, again, let me explain in context the importance of the Lord's Supper. Um, this is not a re-crucification of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has already been crucified once. Now He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, this is a symbolic representation of what Christ has done for us. It's not a super magical uh, um, impartation of spiritual power to us. This is to remind us of the fact that He was killed on a cross for sin. That's literally the expressed intent of what the Lord's Supper is for. So as we enter into this, I would ask that you would take this time to uh, prepare your hearts, prepare your minds, uh, pray with the Lord. Make sure that if there are things in your life right now um, that are, are not right, if you have issues with a brother or sister in Christ, or you have issues in your life that have been unresolved up to this point that are involving anger or some way that you can't deal with it, I would ask you to refrain. There's nothing wrong in refraining from the Lord's Supper in any way whatsoever. Uh, specifically because Paul warns that some people who in a New Testament context have abused the Lord's Supper, they died, to be perfectly honest. This is real. Uh, Christ is real. And this is, this is something that we should take very seriously. So again, please take this time to pray and meditate for the next few moments. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, as we remember your body crushed under the weight and the wrath of God. As we remember you being put up, Lord, on a tree outside of Jerusalem. God, let us as Christians see our sin crucified on that cross with You, Lord. 
let us find great resolve and great thanks in the fact that we have a Savior who has endured more than we could fathom for the redemption of our souls, for the purchase of our souls. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for that sacrifice. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup in the new covenant, my blood, do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Bow with me. Father God, we thank you for the blood that was spilled on our behalf according to your eternal purposes. God, we thank you, Lord, that there is life in blood. As the Old Testament says, as the New Testament says, that there is life in the blood. And the God, that spiritual sense that we can truly drink, Lord, of the life of Christ through the pouring out of His blood for us. We love You, Father. That gift is too wonderful for us to even begin to comprehend, but it is beautiful and it is good. We thank You, Lord, Father God. It is in Your name we pray and according to Your will we ask. Amen. If you will, please stand with us for our closing hymn. And before we prepare to close, do we have any announcements? No announcements. Our benediction will be from Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, the only, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace and happy Lord's Day.